Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. Several weeks ago, Michael Riga and I were having a, a pretty fun conversation about Atlanta International Airport, and he shared me some with me some really great information about, in, in general, about critical infrastructure and, and airports and how they fit into the big scheme of things. And I, I just thought his perspective was so on point for the conversation of emergency management, especially as we've been dealing with this uh, this high of uh, looking at dynamic populations. Uh, you look at an airport, definitely a dynamic population with people in and out constantly. And, and uh, you know, we, we would love to, to explore that more. And so without any further ado, Michael Riga, who is the emergency planner at uh, Atlanta International Airport, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's, it's, I'm really happy to be here. I'm really happy to have this conversation. And it's something I'm just very passionate about. So if somebody's going to lend an ear, I'm going to take full advantage of it and talk the ear off about it. Well, uh, we can take flight in this there episode. Is. Yeah. Oh, gosh. The cheese is already out. So yep. um, let's just talk about, first of all, like who you are and your kind of experiences. How did you get you know, involved with airports and airport emergency management? So how I really got involved in that kind of goes back to right when I finished in high school. Uh, I got into the volunteer fire department, fell in love with it, um, got exposed to emergency management that way. Uh, was a paramedic for 15 years, uh, both at the county level and even working for Grady, uh, which is the level with a level one trauma center here in Atlanta. While I was at Grady, my wife uh, really pushed me to go back to school. I was kind of something I'm very passionate about in itself is uh, people with learning disabilities. A lot of them gravitate towards public safety and a lot of them are like, Oh, I can't go back to school. And I was that person. And my wife was really kind of kicked me in the rear and said, you're too smart to not do this. You need to get back to school. So while I was working at Grady and right at the end of work at the County. And when I transitioned to working at um, Grady EMS, I was able to complete my associates, bachelor's and master's degree in three years through Eastern Kentucky. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, so, and I kind of hook, line, and sinker took it, fell in love with the idea of emergency management just from my exposure at the volunteer fire department. And as I was finishing up work at Grady and finishing my master's degree is when COVID happened. And uh -huh. I was working for the specialty care transport team, and I had the opportunity to be the transportation coordinator at the Georgia World Congress Center, which served as the alternative care center in Atlanta for the COVID patients. And that gave me an amazing opportunity in school to um, use everything I was learning about writing plans because I had there was no plans how to do transportation because the Congress Center was um, being designated basically as a floor of the Grady Hospital. So anytime patients had to have x-rays or anything, they had to be transported by EMS back to the hospital, back and forth, or even incoming uh, ambulances from outside counties. So I was able to really write plans from scratch, which was an amazing feat in school. Um, mm -hmm. And it gave me the opportunity to work with the Georgia Emergency Management Agency, uh, the state, the local um, public health. So it was a great opportunity in school. And it also afforded me the time to do a, my capstone research project, which was in utilizing uh, the dynamic ambulance deployment, their predictive models to predict uh, the most likely time when uh, hurricane disasters would occur within one week. Interesting. Yeah. So it takes about, tw it takes 21 years worth of uh, data to predict year 22. And it's kind of a rolling cycle. And it, 
actually proved to be uh, roughly about 80% effective. And uh, I, lucky enough, I even got to present those findings as in the poster competition at the IAEM conference that year. Okay. And as I was finishing uh, my master's, I had the opportunity to, um, I was taking classes because I was just trying to learn as much as I could. So I was taking the local GEMA classes, the online FEMA classes, Naval postgraduate school classes, just anywhere I could find more education. I was sucking it up like a vacuum. I mean, that's, I think, one way to really kind of go in headfirst, per se. But while I was doing that, uh, I had the opportunity, I took a class and then it had, was actually with Ashley from, that you all know, mm. that um, it was with Robbie Westbrook, who was kind of my mentor. He was the person who was the emergency manager, uh, the emergency manager at the county where I was volunteering when I first started. And he's always been that person that I looked up to. He was kind of that mentor. So taking the class with him, he was working at the airport. He was uh, brought in there to work after to help with um, things. And he was he made me aware that they were getting ready to um, hire and to be on the lookout for it. And so having the ability to work for someone that was my mentor that I had the most utmost respect for, I was so excited. I mean, I was like every day, refresh, refresh, looking for when it came up. So that's awesome. and that's kind of really how I got into it. And I've always loved airplanes. I've been fascinated with it. My mother um, uh, used to work at Boeing. It was at around the time that uh, Bob Ballard, when he was looking for the Titanic, they came to Boeing to, uh, I guess, utilize some technology. So my mom even got to meet Bob Ballard while she was at Boeing. So I've always been fascinated with transportation. I really like airplanes and it's just something that really speaks to me. So after um, the job posting came in, I was able to get hired and been learning a whole lot, I will say. Uh, <laughs> the emergency management field within airports is very similar to the greater emergency management field, but also very special in its own way. Real quick, we're going to pause for this week's Disaster Tough endorsements. This show is owned and operated by professional emergency managers at Doberman Emergency Management. We apply Disaster Tough logic by protecting life, property, and business continuity through planning, mitigation, and training. Check us out at DobermanEMG.com or click on the show notes. Radio Comms just got a major breakthrough with the L3 Harris XL Extreme 400P. It's the newest and toughest radio out there. Built by their space and tactical teams, the XL Extreme Series can take a beating. 1700 degree blast of heat, repeated three meter drops, rain, salt water, you name it. The XL Extreme Series by L3 Harris can take it. Visit L3Harris.com to schedule your demo today. Sawyer products offer the best, most technologically advanced solution for protection against the sun, bugs, water, and injuries. Everything from water filtration systems to insect repellents, time release technologies, really amazing stuff. So whether you're at home, work, or at play, make sure you check out Sawyer at Sawyer.com. Okay, let's jump back in. So you just gave, we're just going to go on these huge tangents all of a sudden. Uh, guys, the limit. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try not to say too many puns, but all these flight puns are coming up. Um, <clears throat> first of all, huge kudos to you for uh, doing stakeholder involvement as you were talking about developing the plans and working with all these other groups to develop your plans. It's like, oh my gosh, the, the guy's doing it right. The second point uh, that I want to make is the, the podcast last week, I talked about step number one is acquiring knowledge. And you're talking about just like, you're sucking it up like a vacuum of like trying to get certs and, and knowledge and trying to do it right. 
doing um, undergrad and a master's in three years, uh, really, uh, really fascinating, just like the, the amount of push that you would have had to do to get that done. And so it sounds like you were, you, you quote unquote, just doing things right, stakeholder involvement, creating plans, acquiring knowledge to be able to get uh, this job and to, to go to an area of which you're passionate about, i.e. transportation and uh, with, uh, with planes. And so um, talk about following the model. You brought up Ashley. I brought this up uh, also last week, like following the Ashley business model of like success, career success. Like that's, you're like checking a lot of the boxes there. And so uh, again, major, major, um, you know, kudos to you and, and hat off to you for that. But the big tangent I want to make here is your, uh, your, your thesis or your capstone project. Tell me more about that because that is really interesting. How did you come up with thinking to compare the two? And then what were your, some of your findings? Um, so kind of where it originated is, and if you go to a lot of big cities or even um, more suburban areas, generally, unless the EMS is run by the fire department, which is the traditional one day on, two days off, or however they do, and then they have the fire stations all around, that's kind of their model. They use the static model. But a lot of major cities, especially ones that have either private or hospital-run EMS services, they use something called system status management or dynamic ambulance deployment. And what that is is... Um, they look at this they basically look at the scale of what they need trucks when they need it and the, the time they do so they don't necessarily have all their trucks up all the time they look at when is the highest number of call volume coming in and then they discovered um uh there's a book written about it. i can't remember the exact uh year roughly when they came up with this but they started noticing there was a cyclic pattern to it and then they discovered that they could take uh roughly 20, I believe it was 21 or 22 weeks worth of data and predict one week forward for every hour. So they could take, you know, um, at two, at two o'clock in the afternoon, they could take 20 so odd weeks of that data and predict that next, uh, in theory, that next Monday's two o'clock's possible call volume and where it's at. And with a high degree of, I believe they were in the 90th percentile. Wow. And that's what most private EMS services utilize. And it allows them to know that they can have, we'll say, 12 trucks running at the highest call volume, but then at night when call volume is very low, you can scale it back to maybe six trucks. Now, I know Michael Brown in his memoir wrote that, you know, the surge is something that, you, that you're always going to be battling. So that model does, it is vulnerable in itself to surge, whether, you know, the, the, the black swan events per se, we right. would say. So why, having spent a lot of time looking at that and being exposed to it and learning more and more about it. And then while I was working on my undergraduate, which was in um, emergency medical care focused with emergency um, administration, I started learning a lot more about it and understanding the context more. We were learning a lot about the statistics behind it. And when I got into my master's, which is safety, security, and emergency management, I you know, I looked at they had a way you could test out or the capstone. And I got really in, fascinated by hurricanes. I've always loved weather. Again, it goes along with and you know, aircraft, which are very weather dependent mm -hmm. and um, very much looking at um, tropical tidbits from uh, Levi Cohen, who uh, I believe he's with the um, the Pacific Hurricane uh, Group for the National Weather Service out in Hawaii. But he runs a website called Tropical Tidbits. And I just became fascinated looking at it and then hearing some of what he was talking about, especially the cyclic nature of hurricanes. I started realizing 
and, and asking the question is, is there a way we can predict not hurricanes, but disaster causing hurricanes? Or when is it most likely so that you can battle that surge, you know, knowing that, hey, we could preposition things possibly or be most aware or uh, if we know that this week or this time frame has the highest possibility of a disaster caused by a hurricane, we can even start with ad campaigns to start to mitigate some of that stuff to prepare people, which is, again, you know, mitigation is what was it? One dollar spent on mitigation. You're saving three dollars in response. I believe seven. seven. OK, thank you. Even better. And, uh, yeah, exactly. But that goes why, you know, asking this question and figuring out a way to test it was so important because it can save a lot of money, which, again, we are fiduciary responsibility to the tax holders or our stakeholders, and it can help other areas. And so I started playing around with it and really saying, OK, if, if they're 22 weeks or 21 weeks to predict uh, week 22 works, let's try it for hurricanes, but let's scale it at the year level. And wow. then it was the fun part of making numbers crunch, yelling at uh, Microsoft Excel a little bit, you know, got to. There, there's no other way around it. Let's be honest. And really looking at it and it's like, okay, we're just going to do years, but we're going to normalize everything, making it the ISO, um, the ISO week. So that it's all the same. And then we use UTC time so that we knew what time a hurricane occurred for whatever time zone. It was all normalized so that we know then what week and what time frame we're looking at. And it, um, it, the, Roughly the p-value equaled out to it was um, about 78% um, able to predict the week that the hurricane disaster would occur. Or the most likely week in that year. So <clears throat> there's an episode where a neur neurologist goes on to Joe Rogan podcast and his mind is just being blown the entire time. And I just feel like like i i love data and i love uh a deep analysis and really data science and you just spoke verbatim like a data scientist and data scientists and emergency management is like it is so absolutely needed and not utilized at all i think zach borst just did a post for us about um an intelligence analyst in an eoc Mm -hmm. You just you just outlined what that looks like in the most fascinating and wonderful way. Um, gosh, I just talk about like like I really want to talk about Atlanta Airport for sure. However, this is this is really really incredible to think about. And so instead of the twenty two week cycle, you're look or what did you say twenty one cycle? You said twenty one years. So mm -hmm. it's the cycle. Um, <clears throat> I, I brought this up on one other podcast. It might have been with Amazon. Uh, yeah, I think that was with Amazon. Um, have you ever heard of Q theory before? Uh, no. No, let me explain. No, it to but, you. Not, but with all the, the politics out there, I do get worried when you throw that out there. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's I, I had to do that. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's good. That was a good, that was a good job. Uh, okay, so Q is in like you're standing in a line, like a Q. Okay. So <clears throat> there's a mathematical equation that shows well, bank teller is the easiest way to explain this. If you have one person come in exactly every 10 minutes and it takes exactly 10 minutes to process that person and you have one bank teller, 
then you will have zero Q, right? 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, processing 10 minutes. However, uh, that's not reality. One person will come in, then three people come in. One person might take one minute, the other person might take 13 minutes. And so there's a mathematical equation to estimate how often people will come in. Uh, the problem when, when people don't understand that, they, they, they start looking at staffing. And they say, okay, if uh, I have a queue or I have 15 people in line, and uh, those 15 people in line, if I hire one other person, then that makes it like kind of, let's say 16 for sake of conference, like eight and eight, which is also not realistic because you don't literally do every other one, right? Um, because people take longer and shorter. So if you had one person uh, who takes 10 minutes to process a claim on average, and you throw in the mathematical equation, in real life, uh, just following the math, by the end of the day, your queue will be over eight hours. In fact, it'll be eight hours and like 48 minutes long for one person processing. Uh, to look at, looking at that math, if you add one other person, just one other person to that queue, the longest wait time you'll have in your queue is three minutes. Hmm. And so like looking at staffing, people think, oh, I have this eight hour queue. I need to hire 50 people, right? We got to like just get this way down. But looking at data science and so thinking of queue as in hurricane queue and staffing requirements, matching that up with the predictive analysis of when you should have staffing, you, you can figure out not only when you need to ramp up, but how much you need to ramp up. And, uh, you know, the, the difference between that ramp up and the surge can, gosh, I'm going to like nerd out way too fast here. But uh, just like, it's just really, really fascinating that you did this correlation here. And it's even more fascinating that I have never seen that or anything like it in any disaster planning I've ever been to. Um, we, we have a lot of playbooks and we have a lot of like, how much staff do I need for a type one? Sure. But uh, in terms of like the FEMA reservist program, man, they could really use something like that. Uh, uh, because you just said on the podcast, I'm going to call out anybody at FEMA who tries to take this from my Bariga. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Hopefully they reach out to you. Uh, but Rob, yeah, really fascinating Gaston program. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, something else, too, that, again, maybe scaling things up in that you look at some of the uh, other research and uh, publications that have come out from FSU that have correlated earthquakes with hurricanes. Again, if if and this is that question that has to always be explored further is if there is something there, all of a sudden now, does it give you the ability to possibly heighten even earthquake prediction, something that there's a lot of questions about, you know, then that might even be something there, too. So. It, yeah. Kind of the sky is endless with it. And also, can it be applied to other things, even possibly tech disasters, since that's the, kind um, of a new frontier? Yeah, I mean, there's so many applications to predictive analysis that we don't use that we should be using. Um, gosh, the this episode, we got to have you come back. We're going to do another episode with you just about predictive analysis. All right. I might even have uh, another friend or two join. We'll do like this fun roundtable. Oh, that would be um, wonderful. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be a really great experience um, just to even brainstorm and, and look at uh, different models and different ideas. 
which uh, for those of the, the audience that want to geek out with us, uh, definitely we can do that then. Um, just out of curiosity, do you have any kind of like Tableau, uh, GIS kind of background whatsoever? So going in and getting training, like I was talking about, I kind of real went real crazy. I started taking, you know, obviously the local classes through GEMA and uh -huh. the state. I was taking stuff from once I learned about CDP and Teeks, it was like, hey, let's go crazy with it. Um, so one of the classes I started taking, in addition to even CDC and WHO, was I discovered that I could sign up um, through ArcGIS with an uh, sign up an account and they have a whole education section. Yes. And I just started taking as many of the free classes as I could. So I was learning just even the online, the ArcGIS basic, ArcGIS mission, um, pro basic, anything that it was on the free level. I was trying to just take as much as I could. So for for all how much you love learning, there is essentially zero way you can't come to our uh, courses coming up. Uh, the one in November, the die pop one. But we have one coming up. And I don't know if we've even announced it yet. Uh, the first week of February called Emergency Management Technologies. Mm -hmm. And I think you would really, really enjoy that. In fact, um, after the episode, we should talk um, because I, I think you could really uh, provide some really great insight even to the other students. Oh, wow. That'd but, be great. Uh, yeah, it'd be, it'd be excellent for everybody. <clears throat> and I think, you know, supporting, I would say supporting that kind of one thing, too, that I've taken to heart. Um, I've always loved reading. And when I first started going back to school, I was like, oh, I'm just going to read some books for fun, too, to relax while I was on the ambulance. But uh, I got reading um, at the time Secretary Mattis's book, Call Sign Chaos. And there was I love that there. book. I love it is my favorite book. There's enough tabs and uh, notes in the margins. I'm, I'm I can never sell any of my books because I write notes in the margins. But there's a <laughs> quote in there that is actually even as my email it serves in my email signature it says, if you haven't read hundreds of books you are functionally illiterate and you will be incompetent because your personal experiences alone are not enough to sustain you. And yes. that's one reason why he reads meditations. He reads um, like Thucydides. So, and, and that's something I've now taken to heart. So I've just gone crazy with it. So, so doing the same thing with learning. I would listen to call sign chaos. Um, gosh, I would love to have him on this podcast. I would, I listened to call sign chaos while I was growing and like as he was like going through these stories, stories like through like Mosul, or when he was talking about uh, just like the the amount that he has read or the the amount he has done, I'm like it was like pumping me up. It was a, it's an amazing, amazing book. Um, one of the things that I I did, I kept on having to stop row because although I was listening to it while I was rowing, I would like want to do like I would like highlight each of the books that he noted throughout. Um, throughout his uh throughout call sign chaos and i was like okay like here here's like my, my next like 50 books to read um and so i've been um you know or listen to whatever i have time for so yeah. and that's transition. oh i'm sorry no please please oh i was gonna say and that even transition i was getting ready to go to work for um atl the atlanta uh, hartsfield jackson Atlanta international airport um preparing for that, I even started reading other airports plans. Um, I started reading what the FAA requires. And that's kind of probably where we're going to start moving into talking is um, there's actual requirements and what the plan, certain plans are required to have, and then what you can additionally do as well. So and the same thing, I started just even reading plans as dry as they are, just trying to learn from other people. Yeah, the, the gosh, man, you're, you're, again, you're doing it right. The very first thing you should do when you get a job is to read all the plans of the and all the requirements at your location 
and all and as much material as you can possibly get your hands on for everything relevant, um, e even things that are irrelevant. Uh, showing, for example, the um, uh, the the I I don't even remember the the uh, what was it called the ambulance like dynamic. What was that? System, what was system status management. System status management. Like even to look at that and to be able to say like, hey, that's you know, there's so many people that pigeonhole themselves on information and to like, well, this isn't directly within the lane, so I don't need to look at it. Well, you're functionally illiterate because you can't think strategically, you can't think critically because mm -hmm. there's there's no other option for you to learn from. So just really, really fascinating to think about in terms of uh um you know, uh, those perspectives. So <clears throat> going through here, um, let's kind of start to switch gears here a little bit. Uh, as much as I do want to dive down this topic. And like I said, uh, we need to, uh, we need to get back on. So the, um, the, the questions remain is that, um, you know, with, with the airport, you're fairly newer to the job. It sounds like within the last couple of years, it sounds like you've done all the research to be competent in the job. So no wonder they hired you. And I'm sure you're excelling incredibly fast there. Um, but in, in regards to the job, tell us the, the kind of the scope of how impactful Atlanta airport is, because there's several large airports in the United States, but I think this airport definitely provides uh, a different perspective of, of how much, like how big of a critical infrastructure piece it is in terms of transportation. So ATL, which we, we stole the city's nomenclature. So we use ATL. The call sign for the airport is um, KATL. So it's always just been ATL. Um, it is um, an amazing bit of critical infrastructure, both on the world scale and for the country and even for the state. Um, during COVID, we lost the title, but we regained it back. We are the uh, world's busiest airport um, with passenger volume. Um, roughly, um, we see approximately about 90 to 100,000 people a day, uh, just passenger volume, if I'm going off memory from looking at uh, statistics. The Atlanta airport, if something is to occur, we see um, we could, in theory, impact up to 80% of the domestic air travel and possibly up to 20% internationally based on pre-COVID numbers. So every, we affect a lot of downstream that we can do. And part of the reason we are busiest and we see so many aircraft is um, part of our airfield layout. Um, we have uh, two runways to the north, uh, three to the south, and the aircraft can actually um, access either side of the airfield from the terminal. So they're able to pass from the taxiways. So it allows that flexibility and also because all of our runways are in east-west direction and with our weather here, it, it allows us to constantly flow aircraft. Um, on the state level, the airport is the single largest employment center in the state. Um, Whoa. Yes. So, they, and they're not all city of Atlanta employees like myself. Um, they're, some of them are contract employees, so obviously TSA, CBP, Delta, so the airport as an employment center rough uh, encompasses approximately, and this is pre-COVID numbers again, about 60,000 people. So you, there's a lot of people there. There's also a lot of different people you have to consider too. Um, you know, talking about critical infrastructure and also even 
uh, vulnerable populations outside of the, what we normally consider vulnerable populations. Think about how many people are in transit. Um, almost pretty much anybody that's flown has come to Atlanta at one time or another. And, you know, you are in to an aspect of vulnerable population because you don't live there. You don't know, you know, the plane train schedule, how to get to different terminals always. It's you're only there for maybe an hour, if that. So yeah. there's also even a, a different dynamic of vulnerable populations that you have to think of and you have to plan for. And kind of coming back to the critical infrastructure, there's you, there's a lot of different critical infrastructure here as well. Um, pipeline infrastructure with the fuel storage. You have all the electric, um, all the power that has to come here. Everything with the FAA, with air travel. So there's a lot. We even maintain our own bus fleet as well. And we have two different train systems here. Well, they're not technically trains. They're automated people movers, APMs, um, because they are the automated trains, but they're, they're called trains. We have the Sky Train, which goes over to the rental car center, and that actually crosses over the interstate to there. And we also have the Plane Train, which goes to all the different um, terminals, which recently was featured on Good Morning America. So you have... Uh... Or Good Morning today. Yeah, it's a uh, talk about a city within a city. I mean, yes. tr truly, just like the, even the scope of it. Um, and again, I uh, just want to I'm calling you out a lot here, but uh, impressive that you know it off the top of your head. Um, people should understand the scope of what they're working with and uh, the fact that you're able to, to rattle that off. Um, so in terms of the the impact of. Oh, Actually, I want to back up. First of all, a couple thoughts. I don't know uh -oh. if you know the people in charge of all airports or not. So if you could make food slightly cheaper at airports, that would be phenomenal. Uh, but uh, truly, the, the the real problem here is that when you're talking about an employment center, these are completely different companies. You know, mm -hmm. people often don't remember that. Like, as you were noting, out of all the different people that are there, you have different organizations who, quote, unquote, own hubs of that of that airport you as working for the the airport directly do you have uh, a coordination stream between delta and let's say southwest american is there like a uh, a correlation between emergency managers or security staff to share information or how does that process kind of work um, so again one of the most important thing it kind of goes back to the most basic thing about emergency management Building relationships is one of the most fundamental aspects of emergency. Yes. Um, and, and that's there is good coordination um, between a lot of the um, different airlines with us and even um, for uh, even with, like, say, drone monitoring with the uh, federal partners. So um, mm. it's a good coordination. We we constantly try to get together. We we um, have training, uh, what we call generally biweekly training we try to have in our EOC. And we actually invite every, uh, we try to invite a lot of our main um, partners, whether they're the federal partners, the airlines. So we try to, so we can just meet people and get used to knowing one another. And Smart. we'll see sometimes if there was maybe say a, uh, a security threat or something that might be shared. Um, a big thing, um, and which is very important to us and something that's very pivotal is um, a snow or ice event. Um, we actually have a whole kind of, um, generally we have a 48 hour and a 24 hour phone call meeting and it's all the different emergency managers and um, key stakeholders there so that we all know who we are, what's going on. And we all even share what our plans are. So we, again, it is important to know who we are talking to, but also that coordination of it. 
So we always try to talk and be on the same page. And you know, we utilize also a lot of technology in that, whether it's web EOC, email, phone calls, all the above. So speaking of Atlanta, I'm, I'm assuming there's not a lot of salt trucks in Atlanta. How would you guys deal with a ice storm? Like how wide is that, uh, the MOU? Is it multi-state MOU that were they be expecting to come in or? Um, so for us, we actually maintain, so part of FAA requirements is the snow and ice control plan. And that's something we exercise yearly. And uh, so we have a whole fleet of snow plows, snow brushes, brine trucks, and even our um, some of our other contractor stakeholders or uh, um, some of the organizations there have their own um, salting vehicles and, and snow and ice control plans. So we are essentially self-sufficient from the rest of the area. Got it. So and that is something we have to practice. It's federally mandated. We have to go over it and test it and verify it. That's awesome that it um, that uh, you guys can even operate in austere conditions. One of the uh, one of the funny things that you were telling me about uh, a few weeks ago was about a tornado that was on one side of the airport. Tell me more about that uh, that incident and uh, the, the calls that had to be made during that. I think it would surprise a lot of people. Oh, yes. Um, so this was before my time, but it was very interesting hearing about it. And, and even looking back at the historical data, looking at where it all occurred. But there was a tornado on, on the northern side of the airport, and they were still utilizing the southern side of the airport. They were still having planes take off. It was a short-lived, I believe, on when I went back and looked at the data after the story was told me because – like stories, they're like fish. It's like, wait a minute, got to, got to look into this. Wait a minute, because it was just, it, it amazed me so much that, wait a minute, did this really happen? Yeah. And again, we need to learn and always be reading. And so I went back and looked and found out, yeah, there was um, a little EF, uh, uh, I believe it was EF zero tornado up by the northern end of the airport, and they were still util the still utilizing the southern side of the airport. And that is, uh, it is something too after learning that that I began to realize there's a lot of times where even if there's a security event um we had a recent um event that happened here that there was a lot of it kind of impacted us for a little bit but they were still utilizing the airport one of the biggest things is is how quickly can we restore services or can we maintain these services and how and uh, that's something that again that the faa pushes on us and then we meet that challenge without question the some of the best um quote unquote, return to normal scenarios or uh, protocols that I've ever seen, you can call it resiliency if you want, uh, is actually out of Israel. Because they have they have to deal with so many uh, attacks by Hezbollah and by other uh, militant groups, um, when their infrastructure is impacted, especially the road systems are impacted, they uh, their uh, job is to wrap up the entire investigation within one hour they have a one hour get there clean the roads pick up the people uh, clean everything and return to normal within an hour it happens so often out there and um when i was working in dc definitely studied about how they did that like all the th all the processes that have to go into play in order to do that effectively and efficiently and so when you're talking like the faa saying hey you gotta you gotta keep operating here um, it shows that there's a lot of things in play that you both have to consider and the reasons for that. Uh, obviously, it's, it's more than people going on vacation or going on their business trips. Why 
do you believe that the FAA is, is you know, tornado, right? Got to keep sending flights out. Why is Atlanta so important for uh, continuing operations? Well, if when you look at it, um, especially what we've been experiencing recently, where you hear about recent delays just because of a lot of um, passenger demand and storms, there's a lot of second and third order effects that can be experienced. And if uh, we'll say like a, with the weather situation, if you have planes that are in a holding pattern, you only have X number of fuel left before you have to deviate to a backup airport that you've already pre-planned for. So keeping airports open is very important and especially major airports. Um, it's, if, it, if Atlanta goes down completely, how much of air traffic is interrupted in the United States and globally? 80% will be impacted to some degree. 80% of air, yes. air travel. Uh, there was a uh, old funny quote about Atlanta that even when uh, someone passes away that potentially that they would still might have to go through Atlanta to go to their funeral. It was, I saw <laughs> I think it's on Wikipedia is where they have that quote listed. Oh my gosh. Well, it's just, it's like, it's just incredible to think about. Um, uh, I felt the same way down in Louisiana looking at uh, their port because so much of our commodities run through the port in, um, in uh, Louisiana and to think about air travel and, and, and obviously more than people, things get moved around um, and that airport has to uh, continue to operate. Um, well, switching and, gears here. Oh, sorry, please. Oh, I was kind of, and might be the way you might be going when we start talking about the plans and everything, you're talking about the restoration of services and everything. Uh, yes. One thing, the emergency management in, in the airport side of it, um, there's kind of two factions of it. One is the airline, the, the actual aircraft side of it. And then the other side is all of those critical infrastructure stuff. So on the air side, planning is key. And under um, part 139, um, and in there is what's called air circular. It's like the bulletins that support all the legislation. It's uh, 150-31C, and it outlines what your base airport emergency plan is going to be, what's in it, how it has to be tested. Um, so in that regulation under part 139, you have to have a full-scale exercise every three year, once every three years. And we mm -hmm. also do, then we also, we utilize HC if we're big about it. Um, and even in part one, um, you, excuse me, under the air circular 150, you have to use NIMS. So using HCP was a, is a no brainer. Yeah. But we also build up with our tabletop exercises where we make everything progressive to that full scale exercise. Um, and then that helps to when something does happen. Hey, we're ready for it. Um, now, with the um, air circular, it does kind of outline, you know, your basic things that you have to have snow and ice control, you know, air disaster, whatnot. So it outlines what you have. And then the FAA actually has to approve that. And it gets reviewed every so often. But then additionally, you can have any plans you want that support that under it. So we have stuff over queue management, like say with critical infrastructure, you look at the um, SkyTrain, say that goes down. One, how to get people off of it, because it is an elevated track. But it also we have um, the bus bridge service. How are we going to implement the um, busing of people from the rental car center since it is over an interstate? back over to the terminal so we have additional plans not just what is required either so and that's very important and then practicing those plans you know we have our aviation security exercises we um on uh we have in our department we review three plans a month at least so the uh you, you review three plans a month at least okay so what are your man i went to phrase this in a way that uh <laughs> 
because I, I think it's important for the conversation. And I think my audience will get this as well. We want to talk about how people can take lessons learned from Atlanta airport and to apply to them. So uh, of course, I don't want to ask you something about specific, especially that, that you shouldn't share uh, uh, out for the public, but in, in generalities, what are, uh, top considerations for emergency management at airports and beyond uh, using, again, the ambulance to hurricane kind of uh, kind of thing, even if it's not directly within their lane, that you're like, okay, I've learned this through working within the airport system, that if I go over to public safety or if I go to a, a campus, these are the things that I absolutely want to address on the plate. What, probably one of the best things to do is look at what other tools are being used other places and what can you use there? Um, a lot of times we take and, and reach out to your expertise, utilize those relationships. Um, because if you really think about it, what's the main functions of an EOC information management and resource management. Okay. Let's, let's look at number one information management, reach out to the people that know what they're talking about. I am not an expert in transportation, the water system, because the airport has its own water system power, but, I need to build, you know, you need to build those relationships with those people and then find out what works for them. What or what are their needs? And then how do you fix those? Uh, when you look at like a bus service, say like well, I was talking about the queue management plan and a, and a bus bridge contingency plan, you may have buses, but do you have the people who are properly licensed and credentialed? Because remember, we'll say with buses, you have to have a passenger endorsement to drive people. Hmm. So you have to find too. you have to look at your regulations and maybe where those stop gaps are. One thing I'm a big proponent in is even if um, during tabletop ex exercises or even just when reviewing plans, kind of red team it, really see where those faults are, push it till it wants to to really, you know, get shaky legged. Um, that was something you and I had discussed when we were telling me about some of your training opportunities about someone asking, hey, when's lunch? And you're like, well, OK, well, this is we're making it like real life. If you take lunch, that's fifteen hundred people are going to die because you stepped that's away exactly from your right. duties. So how do we, you know, that's something of when you're reviewing something is where are those faults? How can you mentally game it to where you can essentially make the plan fail possibly or where there's going to be a stopgap? And I think that's important. That's something I learned, you know, looking at AARs um, from uh, Fort Lauderdale's airport after their active shooter, um, which has been beneficial for us in thinking of, hey, we're going to end up with a bunch of luggage that people are just going to leave in place all of a sudden you have a bunch of lost luggage where does it go how do you manage that so it's, yeah. it's really looking around you and asking those questions and then playing with your own situations it's important to understand your threats and hazards you you know the thyroid you really need to work that so you know what to expect because if you're playing for a volcano but there's never been a volcano there you you know it's it's a waste of time and yeah. you're not learning from someone else I, uh, gosh, there's, there's about 15 things I could run with that. I'm going to start backwards. I saw a, uh, I saw a regional plan, uh, when I was in the fed, when I was in the fed and half the plan was just definitions and they had an entire section of volcanoes, but there wasn't a volcano for 2000 miles. And I was like, what did they pay for here? And it was, uh, it was incredibly aggravating to think of uh, what a waste of time and resource, uh, that both that plan and the thought process was. Um, and so it, incredibly important to know this is going back uh, one step back to know your 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 true totality of scope and uh, every industry emergency managers like to complain that they never have enough money. Well, welcome to literally every industry on the planet 
you have limited resources. And with limited resources, that means you have to prioritize high frequency, high impact event, events, and then work your way backwards. In terms of the training, and I, I appreciate the compliment. Somebody, uh, we were talking, we're, we were talking to, I, I think that one of the next sites we're going to go to for dynamic populations. And they were, they were kind of brainstorming with us. They wanted to bring some of their people. We thought it was a great idea to, to work together. And then I, I share with them the perspective of you, you're going to have probably some of the best, if not, you know, the best 40 people in the industry come as students. You'll have six SMEs truly in their own right come and a couple of presenters. Everybody, everybody in that room will know the job inside and out. And they're going, the way we, we approach the training is we actually make it immersive, right? So this is kind of for the audience, but we actually go in, if we're going to do it in a football stadium, we actually go in the football stadium. If we're going to do it in an airport in the future, we'll actually do it in the airport and, and we actually do it. The, the coolest part about that is after that operational period, the emergency managers who are from that location just got a, 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 a fire hose of opportunity to say, we're going to test out all of our gaps and all of our processes. And you get this amazing after action where you're like, okay, like we went all in uh, a full scale for emergency management when it's just emergency management is kind of like a functional, but it's kind of like a functional steroids the way we do it. But in any case, like you get, you get to see if you're able to do the job and you get to see like what, where you're all your missing pieces at people pay a lot of money for that. And the fact that they get to come in and people from all over the country, if not globally are coming in and testing it for you, talking about like removing the blinders, really, really cool. And when we were talking about that, like all of a sudden the, the conversation went from like, how do we get the logistics done to uh, what do we want to capture to help you plan for the future and to do this right? And so we, we started looking at the parameters of our scenario. The scenario can change. It's, uh, it's really how to address the, 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 the training model and it should be immersive. Whatever immersive that looks like, three-year full scale or uh, functionals or tabletops, but it, it should you should have opportunities to quote unquote break the plan, and uh, major uh, kudos to you for that. And so, look, um, uh, looking at something you know that was also not necessarily breaking breaking the plan, but looking at those resources outside of the norm. Um, yes. While I was at working as a paramedic at Grady Hospital, I they had a water main break up on one of the upper floors, and they actually did a um, local disaster for Fulton County. They had a declaration for it because of its impact. It was a 36 inch water main break that essentially shut down multiple floors of oh my gosh. the only level of nationally accredited level one trauma center in Atlanta. But it was interesting. I had the opportunity to go back and, and speak with a bunch of the nurses because I worked on the inner facility side of it. Um, of course, every, like every hospital, they have those little flip charts, you know, code, code you know, uh, black, what, is, what do you do or code whatever. And um, I'm sure we've all seen those quick reference hand guides hanging on the wall somewhere. And I was so curious because I've always wondered. And I asked the nurses a lot of times. I said, did you use did you happen to use that guide? You know, we, we spend so much time talking about it. New hire training. Everyone does that. You learn about these. You have little like cards that have the quick sheets on it. And she looked at me. She goes, no, wh why would I? You know, wh what would be in that that could help me? I said, well, what about flooding? 
She goes, well, it, you know, I didn't think about it. It wasn't raining. It was a water main break. But then continuing talking to them, there was a lot that I learned on how they handled the situation based upon their prior knowledge and just experience. And I think mm-hmm. that's where it goes into building those relationships. And it's not that um, being an authoritarian, for anyone that's gone through any basic um, psych 101 class where they talk about different leadership types, that's why it's not good to be that authoritarian, this is the plan, you follow the plan without question. No, you should be authoritative, say, hey, why didn't you use this? Oh, you hear it. And all of a sudden, I learned so much based on what she was telling me. And I think that's one thing I always try to really do. And even talking about when I was talking with you just about that training, learning about, you know, being with high fidelity training and, and how, okay, how can I implement that or even that mindset? You know, what can I start doing different? And it's just, again, goes back to building relationships. That'll, it'll, more than it's worth its weight in gold. What's the point of training and exercises if you don't actually get to push it to the limit? Mm-hmm. Right? If you want to, like, like, I'm not a fan of just, like, patting yourself on the bat. I'm uh, on the back. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of let's make this high fidelity as realistically as humanly possible. And if you succeed, fantastic. Uh, but there should be things that you're able to identify. You're like, okay, points of improvement. No one's ever perfect. You know, how do you improve on perfection? How do you improve on getting closer and closer to that and then reorganize and look at it from different angles? Because sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And um, uh, training exercises should be the, the opportunity to do that. Chief Walt Lewis, I believe, talked about it either in the podcast or just a sidebar with us how we often go in there, especially with firefighters, like the, it's everybody always lives the way we tr- like, like the way we should train is like talking more about preventable death and uh, going back way earlier to, to your comment. Yes. Somebody complains like, Hey, during this exercise, we should all take a break. Pause X for the, for lunch. Uh, uh-uh. like that's not real world. I don't stop in the real world. Sure. You got to eat. You got to live. Got it. But but in a response, um, you know, life saving comes first, and uh, you have to be able to learn to operate in in um, in that uh, atmosphere. So, uh, yeah, I told her it was going to cost her fifteen hundred lives if, if they wanted to take a, a a break. She chose not to, by the way. Well, that's um, good to hear. And she did eat her lunch, so everything turned out all right. Yeah. Well, and for us, um, I'm lucky enough to have a manager who even he he himself kind of uh, implements a lot of that. Um, under one of our exercises that we had back um, for the snow and ice control plan, I believe it was, we were in the EOC, we were doing our thing and uh, he walked in and I kind of noticed out of the corner of my eye, those kind of paramedic spidey senses. It was like, Hey, wait a minute. Somebody else just walked in the room. The next I knew is he turned off all the lights and um, our video wall and everything is controlled by a crash on system. He turned everything off and he said, the power just went out and the backup generator is not working. What are you going to do? And literally oh. he turned everything off on us. And it was how, and a lot of people stood there for a second, just looking at each other going, uh, uh, uh. And it, so one thing that came up immediately was, Hey, we have a mobile command vehicle that's parked out back on shore power, but it's got a generator. We can go ahead and start bring back up our dispatch center. It can hold six dispatchers. Bam, let's do that. And it's got a policy room in the back. So, Hey, we're up and we not at hundred percent, but we're doing something. But in that moment, when you turn off all the lights, you're exactly right. That high fidelity training, it made everyone just stop. And it was a true fight or flight moment because it took a couple minutes for someone to come up with an idea. 
Yeah, and those those minutes are important. Um, yes. You know, there's so many disasters I, I, I was at where I, I swore I was out there. I was like, I'd be talking and be like, yeah, I was out there for like probably three or four months at that point. And then like I'd really have to recall, I'm like, oh, wait, that was only two weeks in. Yeah. Like, it's just like, it's, it's just like you cram so much into such a little thing. What, you know, you're talking about power outages. It's kind of a funny side note. My first, you know, big power outage was uh, in terms of EM was at the National Cancer Institute. And myself and the three or four other people, physical security, we were all anxious. We we're like, okay, we got to do this, this, this. And we were running around. And I still remember the director who was outside of EM, completely EM. He was like, it's just a power outage. Like, it'll come back online. And um, I was, I, I had the simultaneous thought. And I think both, it's kind of two sides of the, the coin here. One is we're making your life easy because that that's why you don't have to stress about this. So you're fine. The second part of, of it is like the population that I'm working with here, how actually are impacted on there. Now, if you lose power at an airport, you're hosed, you know, it's big, big time scare. Absolutely. But sometimes I have to realize like, you know, the, the same problem is with a friend. Every time it rains, my friend is like on edge. You know, it's like, hey, most people don't care about a rainstorm, you know, like wait, wait for it to become a problem. So it's a way for me to calm down. But in terms of exercises and training, I think that's your manager, whoever your manager is. Kudos. This is a kudos episode, I guess. Oh, uh, yes. Gosh, I've said that like 40 times on this episode, but that's excellent and excellent to like trip people up, make them think critically. Mm -hmm. um, critical thinking is uh, hard to come by. Reading helps out with that. Looking at different industries help out with that. Now we're full circle. Uh, but, but Michael, I, let me just uh, kind of wrap up here. Yeah. Um, you've provided a lot of insight that can help emergency managers, whatever stage they're in, whether they need to read more, which I just did a podcast about that. So I totally agree. Or, you know, uh, how to do exercise design, the, the special consideration for airports. Like I said, we probably should have you come back on for a couple episodes. Uh, uh, but in terms of your job, your scope, what you're just hoping that the industry in, in, in totality kind of latches onto, what, what is that passion point for you? I would say it's, it's two things and a kind of a, a, a shout out to you because I actually heard it in one of your episodes, uh, from Brock Long about one project management. And if you look at the planning P that's, that's a public safety you know, picture of pro uh, uh, project management. It, it's the same steps because after I saw your episode with him and he talked about that, I bought a textbook and started reading and realized it's the same thing we learned. One, the project management side of it, because that allows you to organize everything. And then it forces you to realize what you don't know and accept it and then find the experts and build those relationships. And that's probably those two building relationships and project management, because that's how you manage the two, because then you're able to accomplish anything else because Yes, you may have a relationship with this person and they may not be the expert, but they probably know who to go to. And you can make sure that everything else is getting fulfilled. And that, that is so important. And just meeting people and always having that Rolodex. People laugh at me. I have an original Rolodex with business cards in it on my desk. Again, redundancy is everything, too, is that mm. I know that I can find someone in there that's going to be able to help me or point me in the right direction. Even I, if the power is out. I seriously hope that I get added to your Rolodex of, uh, of contacts because uh, I'd love to be able to help you out if I can. And 
Oh yes. Um, you're you're obviously a wealth of knowledge in, in your own right, and you've done the work to in, to seriously catch up an EM, paramedic, firefighter. They understand command and control. You have these wonderful talents with coordinate and collaborate, and you just spoke to it. Uh, seriously, very impressed with what you've done and where you're going. Uh, one day you're going to write a book, and I'm going to read that book, and uh, it'll be it'll be great things for the field. But uh, Michael, again, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast, for sharing uh, a lot of different insights that I think we can all use in the field. And uh, we hope to have you back on sometime soon. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. If you got something out of this episode, I definitely did. You definitely did. Nobody in the field has been talking about ambulances and looking at cycles and comparing that to hurricanes. So if you got something out of this episode, which you should have, you got to give us that five-star rating and subscribe. Check us out on all of our social media uh, channels. If you have found something like Michael has where you're able to articulate and look at different trends and, and how to compare that, share that with the field. Put that in the comments. Tell us, tell your thoughts on this. If you got something out of it or if you're fascinated by something, also put that in the comments so that Michael or the, the podcast can respond. If you have a question for Michael that is outside the scope of the public, which we get a lot, but we always, we always uh, ask people to do it online, of course. But if you have a specific question for him, contact us at contact at thereadinesslab.com and we'll send that over to him so that he can answer it directly. Otherwise, we're excited for to continue on Preparedness Month. Great, great, great episode with Michael, and we'll see you for the next one. <laughs>